So Job chapter 12, we turn to, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy word given to us as people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job chapter 12, God's word. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. For I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am, or I am a laughingstock. And the thought of the one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tent of robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beast, and they will teach you, the birds of the heaven, and they will tell you, or the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate taste food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He is counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can be rebuilt. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, They overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment. Of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and looses the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and sends them away and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So do you believe in fate? Are you one to say, everything happens for a reason? Well, being confessionally reformed, this is not the language we use. We prefer the biblically defined terms of providence and sovereignty. Though, with respect to pop culture, fate does resemble providence in certain ways. And as products of our culture, it isn't common for us to think about providence like fate. Indeed, we use the cliches of fate. There are no accidents. It'll all turn out for good in the end. God moves in mysterious ways. Fate knows best. But that is the thing about fate. It is a convenient store doctrine, cheap, mass-produced, 
and not serious enough to make it into a real store. It's greeting card cute. Fine when life is a paved road with just a few potholes, but fate isn't mature enough when the life's road gets washed out or erased by rocks and weeds. It's too simplistic for real life. Yet we all have the tendency to hold on to true doctrines in this fashion, where our understanding remains in the shallows of the kiddie pool. Thus Job challenges our faith with the deeper and darker realities of providence. So as you remember in the last chapter, Zophar just gave it to Job pretty hard. He rolled up his sleeves and he delivered an all good old-fashioned tongue-lashing. Zophar smacked Job down as a loquacious fool. He thrashed him for claiming to be poor. He pummeled him as a hollow man, which meant brainless, and he battered Job as a wild donkey. And then he ordered him to repent of his sin, to banish all the transgressions from his tent, and if Job did his penance, that God's restoration would be brighter than high noon and draped in security and peace. Zophar did not hold back, and so now it's time for the microphone to be handed back to Job. How is poor, painful Job holding up? Well, he actually seems to be getting a second wind. For the first word that he drops sounds like he agrees with Zophar. No doubt, truly. But then he takes a fast, sarcastic turn. You all are a people. You is plural, so he's addressing all three of his friends, and he labels them a people which means they're all in agreement, one party, one position, the same. Their speeches were three, but their argument was one. The sing- In this singular position of the fr- friends, we can just call the doctrine. And their doctrine was the retribution principle read forward and backwards as the all-encompassing filter for life. God punishes sinners, he rewards obedience, and if you suffer, just find those unconfessed sins in your life and God will restore you. This was the one doctrine of the friends that they made or that made them the same. And Job doesn't make us wait to tell us what he thinks of this doctrine. Wisdom will die with you, he says. And this line seems to have a twofold sense. First, sarcastically, it compliments them as the only wise men in the world. Thus, when they die, so wisdom will be lost to the rest of humanity. Second, though, this line implies that they are killing wisdom. Your doctrine will be the death of wisdom. Their doctrine is so unhealthy and poisonous that it has infected wisdom with a terminal disease. The only wise men murdered wisdom. Yes, Job can hold his own. Thus he counters with one, he counters one of the insults of Zophar. Verse three, he literally says, I have a mind just like you. Remember, Zophar called Job a hollow man, empty-headed and brainless. And so he parries this slur, I too have a brain. I'm not inferior to you. Quit treating me like I'm an ignorant idiot. I can reason just as well. 
Indeed, Job colors their doctrine as, who doesn't know such things? The friend's doctrine that they pose as so profound is actually elementary, my dear Watson. Common sense. Everyone knows it. You act like adults, but you speak like children. It is interesting, though, that Job doesn't call their doctrine false or untruth true per se. Rather, he labels it as common and simplistic. Their retribution principle is kind of like Santa Claus. It's fun when you're three, but by age seven, you should grow out of it. The friend's problem isn't falsehood, but it's being facile and juvenile. Next, Job protests how the friends have used their dime store doctrine. He says, I am like a man who is a joke to his friends. They laugh at Job like he's a cheesy knock-knock joke. Who called on God and was answered? Not Job. Righteous, blameless, that's a hilarious comedy bit. They think Job is so blinded to sin and so deluded at being upright They can only laugh at him. Of course, to be the butt of your friend's joke is deeply hurtful. Friends tease, but they don't make you the fool of their coarse jokes. These three, though, have sharpened their shallow doctrine and weaponized it to hurt Job rather than help. And this, if you think about it, is such a common fault of our own limited wisdom. We will dish out pat answers and serve them up with a side of hurt. And to this, Joe points out a bias in uh, in his friends, verse 5. He says, there are those who are at ease. These are the carefree, the well-off, the sheltered, who stroll down easy street. And for such untroubled folk, they only have contempt for those enduring misfortune. They disdain those in misery and judge their misfortune as prepared for their clumsy feet. Again, the insight of Job here is spot on. Those who have it easy so often scoff and scorn at those who are suffering as if it's something wrong with them. You never get sick. Well, it must be their fault that they get sick so often. You have good money in the bank. What's wrong with them for struggling to get by? We all do this in one way or another. The misfortune of others is disgusting to the carefree. And this is the bias of the friends against Job. Everything's fine for them, so all of Job's agony and drama must be his fault. Misery is merely the fate of the clumsy. The friends dressed up as comforters, but they administered contempt. Yet now Job, now that he's exposed the cruelty of his friends, he shifts to chip away at their one doctrine. Their pint-sized retribution doctrine may not be untrue, but its one-inch depth is misleading and dishonest. So Job uh, tosses out a basic reality that gums up their doctrine. He says robbers live in peace. Provokers of God rest secure. You know those carefree, easy street people? Sometimes they are notorious sinners 
and criminals. The wicked prosper. We all know this to be true. That's a common reality. This is a first-hand experience for us. It's a real-world fact, and it's the one that makes the friend's doctrine of retribution look facile, even wishful thinking. Their doctrine may sound nice, but it hardly does justice to all the happenings under the sun. Not only this, but the last line of verse 6 should be read as, whom God brings in his hand. That is, God ultimately allows, permits, and causes the wicked to prosper. Providence is behind evil flourishing too. And if you're skeptical or unease with this truth, Job says you can go ask the birds and the beasts. The truth that providence prospers sinners is so common and obvious, says Job, even creation can teach it to us. The cow will lecture you about it. Larks and sparrows give TED Talks on it. The tuna and the lobster write blogs on it. Even the rocks and mud teach us about this. As humans, the crowning rational species, we can deny God's providence overall. But irrational beast and inanimate creation hasn't even a shadow of doubt that God controls everything. Remember, Zophar claimed to know God's secret will for Job's life. But Job responds that Zophar needs an education from the termites and the eagles. Zophar thinks he knows the secrets of the Almighty, all the while he's blind to natural revelation. And to round out his point, Job makes explicit what all creation knows. Who does not know this, he asked? Namely, that Yahweh's hand has done this. For the first time since the opening chapters, Job names God as Yahweh. And he underlines that Yahweh does it all. He controls all, he orders all, and his providence includes everything, even the comfortable lives of criminals. Even badgers know it. Thus, our faith and knowledge should not doubt that God's providence works good and evil, order and disorder. In the hand of Yahweh rests the life of every living thing and the breath of all humans. Nothing falls outside of his hands. And with this point made, namely the all-inclusive sovereignty of God, Job next next wants to drill down into it. He wants us to feel the full weight of this truth with all its spikes and sharp corners. And to start off, he calls us to use our heads. He says the ear is for testing words, the palate is for tasting food. Now, these are metaphors for rational thinking and discernment. God gave us minds to think, and so we should use them. Just as our tongues can savor oils and herbs, spices and cream, so our brains discern truths and falsehoods, paradoxes and contradictions. Our ears can distinguish the alto from the soprano, And so they can hear reason amid the absurd or the illogical hiding among the other notes. 
So our rational abilities, so also, Joe points out, our rational abilities are meant to get better with age. He says wisdom is with the aged, and perception comes with many years. Now, wisdom doesn't always come with age, only generally so. But Job's point is more that experience matters. The more you've experienced as the years tick by, the more refined and perceptive should your thinking be. Thus, Job wants both wants us both to use our heads and to draw upon our experiences. Too often, when we par, uh, ponder the abstract doctrines, we often forget the normal facts and events of life. We idolize our heroes and forget they got pimples too. We do science in a lab and lose sight of real-world applications. So also Job rebuffs their abstract doctrine of the friends by saying, use your heads and think of life. Though as soon as Job tells us to be rational and wise, he limits our wisdom with God's own wisdom. We have a measure of understanding, but with, with God, our wisdom and in might. The essence and DNA of understanding and power belong to God. Again, Job is drilling down on Yahweh's hand, does it all, and he performs it all with utmost wisdom and power. Now, odes or hymns to God's majestic wisdom are commonplace in Scripture. They are part of our normal piety and gratitude for us. In fact, Eliphaz issued a similar doxology to God back in chapter 5. In the last chapter, Zophar lauded the infinite wisdom of God. Yet typically, these songs of God's incomparable intelligence and power, wisdom, these are often set to Christmas-like tunes. That is, their melody is full of light and joy, wonder and amazement. They're sung by a majestic choir in a bright cathedral like Handel's Messiah. Job, though, makes a different musical selection. He picks more so a Halloween tune. Dark, jarring, complex, and discordant are the notes that he sings along with. Indeed, Job leads us through a haunted house on the Day of the Dead instead of a snow-kissed lane of Christmas lights. The first movement of this scary symphony is found in verses 14 and 15. It says, God tears down and it's not rebuilt. He closes and none can open. He withholds water and all is dry. He sends water and the world is wiped out. That is, God performs destructions that are irreversible and unfixable. Now, this counters Eliphaz's hymn back in chapter 5 when he said, God only wounds in order to heal, he smites in order to bind up. In our happy elementary thoughts, we like to think good always wins. Sure, there are disasters, but God uses them for good. Every cloud has a silver lining. But such optimism hardly can be proven from reality. Sometimes God destroys, period. He tears down, and it's never rebuilt. At the end, 
There is evil, and it does not change. Indeed, the water imagery is especially poignant in this. For as you know, water is the essence of life. It's the fertilizer for all that is green and lush. Water heals and refreshes, but not always. For God can send a drought, and all turns brown. He can send a flood, and all are buried in the mud. God uses the instrument of life as a weapon of death. And all our crazy weather is clear evidence of this. A deluge slaughters in Kentucky while a drought strangles in Texas. One moment, not enough water, and the next, way too much. And Yahweh's hand does this too. But where this is the opening introduction to this to Job's dark hymn, the main movement comes in verses 17 through 25, which is a highly structured and artistic section of poetry. Thus, in these verses, each verse starts with a he. Indeed, Job posits active causation to God for everything done here. There's no hiding of God behind secondary causes or passive verbs. Moreover, all the actions are topsy-turvy, mysterious, and borderline absurd. That is, they're not logically comfortable. They defy, defy definitions. Likewise, the acts uh, cannot easily be placed in a good or evil category. Hence, note Job list off your classic officers of experts. There's judges and priests, kings, nobles, the eloquent, and elders. These are the trained experts in their respective fields back in Job's day. They held the rightful and honored place in society. These officers had the skills to succeed in their jobs as a matter of nature. Yet in Job's Halloween Rhapsody, All these winners lose. The advisor who planned for victory are stripped in defeat. The highly educated minds of the judges go mad. The eloquent lose their voices. The elders who should have had the insight of years get Alzheimer's and dementia. The priests who should be blessed by God are cursed. Furthermore, no reason for their defeat is given. Now, these could be corrupt authorities being judged, or there could be noble officers just taken out. Thus, we cannot determine if they're good or bad. God looses the bonds of kings, Job writes. But is this a good king being liberated or a tyrant being set free? We don't know. History records both. Instead, the emphasis falls on the destructive in the absence of human morality. God does these without consideration to the piety of the priest or the justice of the judge. The same goes for the latter part of this spooky hymn. It says God reveals secrets. This seems to be good. But then he he uncovers literally darkness and death shade. These two things belong to the demonic of the underworld. To release death shade to the light 
is like freeing zombies on the land of the living. Is Job stating here that God opens humanity up to the demonic? Maybe. Next, the Lord makes nations great only to destroy them. Indeed, Atlantis won fame only to be lost and never found. The glory of Rome arose and it will never be rebuilt. Finally, the Lord removes the understanding of leaders. He turns their astute minds into insane lunatics who wander among pathless chaos. The smartest of us can grope in the light as if it's dark. Road scholars can turn into homeless drunks. But what's the point of this creepy hymn? Why does Job bring out the ghost and the goblins? He does it to show how the infantile insight of the friends, or how infantile the insight of the friends' doctrine of retribution is. First, in this song, God is the author of everything by direct causation. Second, it all unfolds irrespective of human morality. Obedience or witness have wickedness have no discernible function here. Third, it's all destructive for destruction's sake. There are no silver linings here, no rising of the phoenix, no spring bloom after the winter kill. Rather, here everyone ends up naked, insane, scattered, and wandering in the wild like a drunk man. Finally, we all know by experience in the first hand that this happens. We have seen excellent judges voted out of office, and the corrupt ignoramus wins a fifth term. This is the haunted house side of real history and the hard facts of our lives. To deny this data of life under the sun is to bury your mind in a baby blanket. Moreover, why God does this is mysterious. Equally true is God's wise power that he brings it all about, but the logic of his ruling history is beyond us. Sure, the retribution doctrine of the friends might fit here or there, If the noble was wicked, he was punished with contempt. But retribution hardly fits all these actions of God. To read only by retribution ends up actually dishonoring God's mysterious and transcendent wisdom. Retribution leaves us in diapers when wisdom calls us to be big boys and girls. Therefore, Job is challenging our faith to embrace a mature view of God's sovereignty. The friend's doctrine may not be explicitly wrong, but it's kindergarten theology. It is a Disney-fied version of faith, of fate, which our age and the church has been completely infected by. We like to wear the badge of Calvinist, but our understanding of providence often never outgrows the daycare. Providence can be like a cartoon for us, where the good always win and people only get what they deserve and setbacks are always for improvement. 
Thus, Job sings us through the graveyard of providence. He tells us that if you believe in providence, then you must also embrace the powerful mystery of Yahweh's hand doing it all. Carefully, Job never says God is unjust or wicked. No, this is a line that we cannot cross. But in his wisdom and strength, God performs all the unfathomable disasters and misfortune. He ruins and never fixes. He makes the good lose as well as the bad. In our day, when youth and immaturity are idolized and lauded, Job gives our faith a good adulting. He welcomes us into the grown-up section of the library of providence and sovereignty. To believe in God's wisdom means trusting him and the mystifying, destructive side of his providence. Of course, a kid's first taste of adulthood is scary and disorienting. This spine-chilling requiem of Job can put us out of balance. It terrifies us to make us think that God seems capricious. We experience his inscrutable providence as fickle, unpredictable, and unstable. The friends, or the, the God of the friends doctrine of retribution tries to make it all understandable, predictable, and safe. But the God of sovereignty is transcendent, wild, untamable by humans. Job makes us grow up, but he also takes away the anchor. How, then, can we find some footing for our faith in this enigmatic and unfathomable doctrine of providence, of God's wisdom? Well, Job remains tethered by that very thing, by God's wisdom. He keeps underscoring it several times here. He says, with God is wisdom, with God understanding, counsel, sound wisdom. Job never wanders from God's utmost wisdom, for with wisdom comes perfection. From God's wisdom may come the bizarre happenings, the bewildering reversals, the destructive misfortunes, and painful evil. But Yahweh's wisdom always remains perfect and holy. Even more for for us in the New Testament, the New Testament gives us a name for this wisdom. Jesus Christ. Our Savior who died and rose for us is also the one who ascended on high. And at the right hand, Jesus Christ is steering this vehicle called providence. The one who loved you upon the cross is behind the steering wheel. This does not change the nature of providence as sometimes being very dark and mysterious, but it makes all the difference for us since we know that the one who is in control loves you. Jesus steers this sovereignty ship for his glory, and he covered you in his righteousness for his glory. Furthermore, he assures you that he does everything towards you, Christ, 
out of grace. Jesus deals with us out of grace and not by the retribution of the law. The events of life are still painful and confusing, but Jesus gives you the confidence of his grace and his constant affection. As the resurrected wisdom of God, Jesus gives you the promise that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And this is enough. Indeed, it's our overflowing cup. The love of Jesus is the strength of your faith to endure through the upsetting ups and downs of providence. For Jesus is also your living hope that he will bring you through all this mysterious providence to your eternal home, where then truly all will be good and perfect as we stand before the face of our God and of Christ to live in that light forevermore. Yes, God is all wise, but in his wisdom, he has given us Christ to guide us. And this is a joy. Amen. Let us pray.